The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Or as it is more commonly and popularly known, the North Star is actually a system of three stars, unless you, if you didn't, uh, weren't aware of this, the brightest of which has been named Polaris A. Maybe there are some of you uh, aspiring astronomers who know these things. But the, uh, the brightest of which of these, this star system has been named Polaris A, and Polaris A is a variable or a pulsing star because it changes its brightness over the course of about four days. Polaris B is much smaller. Uh, it's the much smaller companion star, and it has a slightly bluish color if you look through it through a telescope. And astronomers estimate that Polaris A and Polaris B are about 240 billion, that's B, a billion miles apart, which speaks to the size and the brightness of these stars, because when you look at, uh, look at them without a telescope, they appear as just one star. And then Polaris C was discovered in 1929, and it's called a white dwarf, uh, and it's a mere 1.7 billion miles away from the main star. Now, the question is, the question I wanted answered was, how far is this star system away from the Earth? Well, it is only 1.9 quadrillion, that's the number that comes after trillion, it's only 1.9 quadrillion miles away from Earth, and that's just an estimate. Actually, scientists are not entirely sure, there's some disagreement as to how far it really is away from us, and its combined brightness is 2,500 times that of our own sun. But it's only the, the 50th brightest star or star system in the sky. But the reason why it's so well-known is because the North Star for centuries has served sailors as a fixed point that they can use in their navigation. Those sailors in the Northern Hemisphere have used it to navigate their paths through the ocean because it remains large, uh, relatively fixed nearly directly above the North Pole and has remained unchanging in its position for the last several centuries. So mariners can align their course on this star and move in a consistent direction in the ocean on their ways to a particular de destination and then on their way back home. They just set their coordinates according to that North Star and they will be safe in, their, in terms of their direction of their voyage. Negatively, however, if sailors fail to remain fixed on the North Star, they would drift off course and eventually end up to a place they had not anticipated and probably did not desire. Well, infinitely more glorious and constant than the North Star is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. But similar to the North Star, according to the author of Hebrews, if we fail to fix our settings on God's glorious sun, we will drift off course to a place that we did not anticipate and a place that we probably did not desire. And before we get into our passage today, I actually want to front load today's sermon with the, the point of the passage so that as we go through it, you can put all the pieces together into this one main point. Here's the main point of the passage today. In the final stage of God's redemptive plan, what the author calls the last days, in this final stage of God's redemptive plan, we come to the very pinnacle of God's revelation. No longer is he speaking through sinful, finite human prophets. He is speaking through his own unique, perfect son. No longer is God speaking in diverse ways. His revelation is unified in this one glorious person. 
But there's a specific pastoral aim to all of this discussion on this glorious sun, and it's found in chapter 2, verse 1. And so we actually have to take chapter 2, verse 1, and bring it up into today's sermon and weave it throughout the next sermons on chapter 1. The author of Hebrews has an intensely practical reason for why he's about to paint this glorious picture of who Jesus Christ is. And just as Peter read it, and I was reading it with Colton just now as we were reading it together as Peter was reading it, I read it and closed my Bible and be like, good night, I got to preach this now? This passage? This passage? I have to do justice to this passage? Well, that's the attempt here. But he has, the author has a pastoral goal as to why he's going to paint this magnificent picture of Jesus Christ. And here it is. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The author wants us to rivet our eyes on Jesus Christ so that we won't drift away from the faith. That's the goal of today's passage. That's the goal of the next passages in chapter 1. It's summed up here in chapter 2, verse 1. We are to rivet our eyes upon Jesus Christ as our north star so that we will not drift off, of course, and make a shipwreck of our faith. The author of Hebrews wants Jesus Christ to be the blazing fixed point on the map of your life so that you not, do not drift off course. So that's the point of today's message. It's the point of today's passage, and we're bringing that up from chapter 2, verse 1. Let's look now at the first couple of verses in our passage, verses 1 and 2. If you're following along, the outline says, this is God's supreme revelation. The Son is God's supreme revelation. He writes, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The obvious aim in these introductory verses is to give the listeners, you and me and the original listeners, a clear and lucid vision of the supremacy of Jesus Christ in God's redemptive plan and all of his uh, revelation. The author begins by drawing this portrait of the Son of God by highlighting the way that God previously revealed himself and by way of contrast. God previously revealed himself to the fathers, as he says, in many portions or in many times and in many ways. But I, I just want to note the, the, the skill by which he is crafting these things. You can't see it in your English versions, but the Greek words translated many times, many ways, long ago, fathers and prophets, they all begin with the same Greek letter. So here he is using some alliteration to capture the attention of his listeners. There's no necessary conflict between high, God-centered, Christ-exalting theology and really good, attention-grabbing literature like this. Solomon, as an example, in the end of his book on Ecclesiastes, he writes this. He says, the, the, uh, beside being right, besides being wise, the preacher also taught people knowledge Weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The author of Hebrews is writing in such a way so as to capture your attention. He's not boring. He's not being boring. He is capturing our attention. The phrase is many times and in many ways. This refers to indicate that God often spoke to his people through the prophets. He didn't just do it now and again. 
we have a wealth of revelation in the Old Testament of the ways that God revealed himself to his people. And in, in many different ways did he reveal himself. But what I want us to note is when he says he revealed to himself, himself to the fathers through the prophets, he's not only referring to what we might call the, the major and the minor prophets. When you hear the word Old Testament prophet, you probably think of Nahum and Obadiah and Jonah and Daniel and Jeremiah and, and Isaiah and so on. Here, prophets more likely means the entire Old Testament and all the authors of the Old Testament because, as will become more clear in the book of Hebrews, but is also clear here, he is contrasting the old and the new covenant the old way in which god revealed himself and new and now the new way that he's revealing himself in jesus christ so it's likely that he is referring to when he says prophets he is referring to the whole old testament scriptures also it's clear in the old testament that those who wrote in the old testament and those who spoke in the old testament not just the major and minor prophets but moses was called a prophet samuel was a prophet Moses then communicated that what God had given to him to the people. And so he revealed himself in, in various ways in the Old Testament to these prophets, all of which all of the authors of the Old Testament could be considered prophets in that sense. And he not only that, but he used various ways of revealing himself. He used narrative. He used poems. He used proverbs. He used dreams and visions. He even used prophetic dramatizations. Isaiah and Jeremiah would act out God's judgment upon Israel so they could see it with their eyes what was about to happen to them. Ezekiel did some of that as well. At every stage of redemptive history, God gave his word to his people Israel, or as the author calls them, our fathers. And again, I don't take this to be a reference just to the patriarchs, but to all that generation, the whole generation of, of, of Israel for those multiple centuries, God revealed himself beginning with Moses and through the prophets. And again, I think the reason we can conclude that is because the contrast that's being made between the old covenant revelation and the new covenant revelation. Now he's making a clear distinction between the way God revealed himself to the fathers or to Israel in the past, and now he has revealed himself to us in a special and unique way. Way We are the recipients of a unique and special revelation, something that the old covenant people did not get to experience. But why does he say last days? You find that word, that phrase to be interesting? This phrase last days is actually found a lot in the Old Testament. You can find it in Genesis 49.1. Sometimes it'll, be, it'll say latter days or days to come. Genesis 49.1, Numbers 24.14, Isaiah 2.2, Jeremiah 23.20, and so on. It's, it's, it's mentioned a number of times throughout the Old Testament. It refers to the future days when God's redemptive promises to Israel will be fulfilled. So the author of Hebrews is saying that with the coming of the Son, this Messiah, the coming of the Son, God is now fulfilling his redemptive promises to his people. He has inaugurated the new covenant and is now pouring out salvation, not just upon Israel, but upon all people. That is now the expansive reach of the gospel. It's now for the Gentiles, something that was previewed even in the Old Testament. So in these last days, these last days are the days that the Messiah has come. We are now in the last days. We've been in the last days for the last 2,000 years, so it may not feel like the last days, but we, in terms of God's timeline of redemptive history, we are in the last days. Why? Because the Son of God has come. That for which the Old Testament prophets are waiting and prophesying 
uh, and preparing us for, he is now here. We are in the last days, and now God's revelation is being summed up in the Son of God. So that's where he is getting us. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then from this point on, he is going to tell us who this son is. And if you've read through uh, Hebrews before, and even now as you listen to it being read, when Peter read it, you could, it's, a, it's a glorious picture of Jesus Christ. It's so glorious, it even has you scratching your head a bit, going in verse 3, like, what does it mean that he's the radiance of the glory of God? But whatever it means, I'm being blown away by this picture, this portrait of Jesus Christ. But the question I want to ask is, why launch into this just immediately as you open the book? I mean, couldn't you just prepare us a little bit? He just launches straight into developing this picture of the this glorious picture of Jesus Christ, God the Son. And again, when you're trying to figure out why a writer is is saying the things that he's doing, all we really can do is reconstruct from what the letter is saying itself. We can only really reconstruct from the things that he says and the things that he's contrasting the original situation with these listeners. And the original situation clearly had something to do with angels. There is something to do with angels that he had to clear up in the way he contrasts Jesus with the angels. You can tell they had some sort of confusion. It was a teaching that was creeping in or maybe is some sort of hangover from their uh, Judaism and it was affecting the way that they were perceiving Jesus and so the author is now going to contrast Jesus with the angels and the reason we know that he has this in mind is because he (laughs) references angels several times throughout just this one chapter and then again into chapter two chapter one verse four he mentions that the son has a name superior to the angels Then again, he contrasts the angels in verse 5 with the sun. And then again, he talks about the angels worshiping the sun. And then he talks about how the Bible uh, describes the angels in verse 7. And then again, he talks about angels being ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. So he's he's got a concern about angels, right? So as we're reading along this text, we're starting to understand, okay, we can can conclude there's something going on uh, with this group of Christians that has to do with the way they were revering angels. And it was a reverence that was rivaling the sun. And so he needs to be very clear as to who the sun is. It even goes on into chapter 2, believe it or not. Verse 2, it says, he's referring now to the Old Testament. He says, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, he's referring to the Old Covenant message. The, the Old Covenant message probably likely the one from Sinai that God gave when he was speaking to Moses and Moses spoke to the people. And the reason we can conclude this is because Paul Paul talks about this in Galatians 3. Angels had something to do with the delivery of the old covenant. What they had to do with, we don't really know, but they had something to do with it, enough to where that Paul and the author of Hebrews are familiar with it. And it probably comes from Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. This is Deuteronomy now. It says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned, from Seir upon us, he shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with 10,000 of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So that might be the text that these authors, Paul and the author of Hebrews, are drawing from. Anyways, the angels had something to do with the delivery of the old covenant. And so they're, high, they're held in high honor in Judaism. But then also, it says over here, 
in chapter 2, verse 7, quoting now Psalm 8, that you, God, have made him, that's man, a little lower than the angels for a time, for a season. And you're thinking, well, Jesus is a man. And so it may have been the case that now they're actually, Jesus is not even on par. Maybe he's a little lower than the angels because he's a man. And this kind of teaching is starting to, to create a kind of view towards Jesus is, that is not as high and as exalted and glorious and faith-nourishing as it should be. And so he's got to answer this issue by contrasting who Jesus is and the worship that he deserves with these angels who are nothing in comparison to Jesus. They have a purpose in God's redemptive plan, but they are nothing in comparison to the Son of God. And so he needs to make that clear. And so that is what he will do in the next several verses. Now turning back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The author of Hebrews needed to make sure that these Jewish Christians were not tempted to exalt angels above Jesus Christ. To do so would be to reject Christ. So it could be that they're wanting to exalt angels above Christ. Maybe they're even giving Christ an exalted angel status. One or the other. Either way, they're not beholding Jesus the way they should behold him, or they're, they're in danger of doing that. And there's, there's a kind of teaching that's creeping in and threatening to undo their faith. And I just want to point out that there really is no new heresy. Every modern-day heresy is simply an old heresy, an ancient heresy with new clothes on, right? And once you start getting under the clothes, you're like, oh, I recognize you. You're Arianism from long ago. And it, it just so happens that today Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is an exalted angel. And here you have a text that addresses that very issue explicitly. So that you can take someone who believes that and say, well, hold on here, because the author of Hebrews is, is talking about this very issue. And he's contrasting Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, God of very God, with angels who are created beings. So the scripture is sufficient here. The scripture actually anticipates and answers this kind of heresy. In the text of Hebrews, the author is carefully crafting an argument specifically to contrast Jesus with angels to leave you with the inescapable conclusion that this one through whom God is speaking is God the Son. You can call him that. He is the Son of God, and he is rightly called God the Son. Well, who is this Son? Now he's just going to unleash upon us a torrent of theological depth, the bottom of which we will never get to this side of eternity. And we'll be uh, uh, seeing it for all eternity. We will be plumbing the infinity of Jesus for all eternity. But he's going to give us a taste here. Who is this sun? Who is this north star that we have to rivet our attention upon in order to and persevere in the faith? Well, the first attribute that he draws us our attention to is that he is the legal recipient of the entire universe. This son of God is the legal recipient of the entire universe. He says this, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. What things? All things. Half of, the, half of everything? No. 75%? No. Everything. Everything in the universe. The ESB is translating all things as all things, but then it uh, translates it as universe in verse 3. It's the same phrase. It's the same word, all things. Why? Because the entire... Why does the ESV uh, 
why is it legitimate for the ESV to translate it that way? Is because that's what the author means. Jesus is the rightful recipient, the legal heir of everything in existence. And this truth is reaffirmed by Paul in Colossians 1.16. This is what Paul says in Colossians 1.16. He says that all things were created through him and for him. The universe exists for Jesus. And that brings us to the second attribute. Jesus, the Son of God, is the legal recipient, the heir of everything. He will someday inherit it in its inherit it in its fullness. He currently does own it, but there's coming a time when it will be clear to all that he is the Lord of all, and all will bow their knee. But the second point in same in the same verse is that. He is the creator of the world. It's fitting that he would be the heir of all things because, as Colossians 1.16 just told us, he is the maker of all things. All things were created through him and for him. And he's the author of Hebrews is saying similar things right here. It is fitting that the creator of all things would be the heir of all things, right? only makes sense. Through whom, that's the son, he created the world. The father created all things through the sun. And the word here for world could also be translated as ages. And the, the idea here with the way he's using the word all things and uh, ages here is that the sun has made everything. Together with the Father, they have made everything. Every star that you see, every human being you that you behold, every aspect of this world that we live in, every aspect of the universe has been made through the sun. The sun's status as co-creator is actually a major teaching in the New Testament. It's not a small teaching. It's not a side teaching. It's actually a major point. These Jewish writers had, who, who grew up in monotheism, there's only one God. I mean, that was the air that they breathed. They, they, they spoke the Shema on a regular basis. There's only one God. And that's the, the theological air they breathed. They had no problem saying that the Son of God was the person through whom all things were created. Listen to this in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Is there anything that he didn't make? No. And without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, 15 through 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn there means the preeminent one, not the first one created, as Jehovah's Witnesses will try to persuade you. The word there means the preeminent one, the one who rules over all as the firstborn, who has firstborn status. And, and here's the reason you can conclude that. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions and rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Why is he preeminent over all creation? Because he's the creator. 1 Corinthians 8, 5 and 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. How did you come into existence? Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews is clearly following the apostolic tradition at this point. This is a big teaching in the New Testament, and the author of Hebrews is affirming it head on. He'll even, again, say things very similar in verse 10. Speaking of the Son, he says, You, Lord, and he's quoting from Psalm 102, he says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the Son. 
Again, when you look out in the night sky, who cra- whose hands crafted that? The sons, right? You may, you may tend to think of God the Father primarily. It's, and, and he did. The Father is co-creator with the Son, but you can just as equally say that it was the Son who crafted that marvelous universe that you are able to behold when you get out there in the country a little bit and you get away from all the light pollution, right? The Son of God is the creator of all things, and that fact alone should suffice to prove his deity. And I'm just surprised that it doesn't, right? To, to be the creator is to be God, by definition, right? To be the creator is to be God, by definition. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the Bible starts. And so if you are the creator, you are, by definition, God. And indeed, when God speaks against the idols that were infecting Israel's religious life, he talks like this. When he's talking about creation and about the idols, he says this in Isaiah 44, 24. This is just this, I love this passage for what it means when we talk about the Son of God. He says, this is Yahweh speaking, okay? This is the one God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the one true God. Thus says Yahweh, or the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh, who made all these things, who, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. If the Son of God is co-creator of all things with the Father, then he is God, for only God is the creator. If the Son of God is co-creator with the Father, then he is Yahweh, for only Yahweh is the creator. He needed no help. So by claiming that the Son is co-creator with the Father, he is claiming that the Son is Yahweh. Jesus said to the Pharisees who were unbelieving before Abraham was, I am. That's who the Son is. Angels didn't create the universe. Are you kidding me? Angels didn't create the universe. They were there applauding when they were beholding the triune God create the universe. That's what the angels are doing. They're like, hey, that is legit. That's what they were doing. Can you do that? No, I can't do that. But I, I'm, in, I'm enjoying this. Job 38, 4 through 7. Uh, God is asking Job, confronting Job now, at the end of the book, saying, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. These little sons were the angels. They were not the son who actually created the world. They are the ones who got to enjoy watching the triune God create the universe, but they were themselves not the co-creator like the Son is. This is who Jesus is. He is your creator. He owns you by way of creation. He owns you by way of redemption. So let these truths create for you a grand vision of Jesus Christ. I remember when I was first introduced to these realities that Jesus Christ is a creator and just how overwhelming it was to consider that the, the very creator of the universe walked among us 2,000 years ago, and not only that, but then gave his life for us. He is nothing less than your creator. He is not an angel. He is the creator of angels. That's the argument of the book of Hebrews. Next point, though is he, he not only is the legal recipient of all things, and, and not only is, is he the co-creator of everything, he is equal to God in his very essence. He is equal to God in his very essence. 
He can't just leave us with telling us that he's the creator. He is now going to explode your minds and my minds with these profound truths about intra-Trinitarian glory that I pray will feed our faith. The first thing that he says is that he is the radiance of the glory of God. That's how the ESV says it. The, the NASB, the New American Standard, says that he is the radiance of his glory. The, the ESV is just inserting God so you can understand who he's talking about here. The Son is the radiance of the Father's glory. Does this mean that the Son is some sort of emanation of the Father's, some sort of lesser emanation or derivative of the Father so that the the, the Father is the one who has inherent glory and there's just some sort of emanation and it's, it's the Son that's kind of uh, emanating of, 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 apart from the Father. Kind of like the Son in our solar system, you got the Son and then you have the rays of the Son. I would say no, emphatically no, that's not what he means. And the reason why it can be so emphatic is because of the context. Because then he goes on to say this, and he's the exact imprint of his nature. So whatever the Father is, the Son is too. <laughs> so he can't be the mere emanation or some sort of lesser derivative of the Father because, as he goes on to say, he is the exact imprint of his nature. By saying he's the radiance of his glory, I take this to mean that Jesus is the very glory of God. And the glory of God is the sum of all that he is. All that God is, the Son is, so that he can shine forth from the Father as all that God is. And you might be thinking, well, this is, this is blowing every category I have in my mind. And that's good, because that's what Scripture should be doing for us. The reason why the cults get so caught up and tripped up on the doctrine of the Trinity is because they're looking for that which makes sense. They're not looking for what is true. They're looking for what makes sense to their own reason. They're not looking for what is true. We want to yield to what is true and let our reason, let our minds be shaped by what is true. I want to know what is true. Just because you can't understand something doesn't make it any less true. That is such a foolish position to take. I can't understand quantum mechanics. I don't know if I'll ever be able to, but it doesn't, doesn't make those, those realities any less true. I don't understand high levels of mathematics, but that doesn't make, make those uh, things any less true, right? In, in terms of who God is, we want to set our sight on what is true and that ask God to form these categories in our hearts and minds. And when we yield to his word and his spirit and let these categories be formed by scripture, you know what we see? We see glory and we behold the sun and it nourishes our faith. The glory of God is the sum of all that God is, and the Son is the sum that all of God is. But here's the, the beauty of it. The author is making it clear that he is distinct from the Father. So fully equal to the Father, yet distinct in his personhood. All that God is, the Son is. The only difference is that he is, in fact, the Son, not the Father. Which is why he goes on to say that he's the exact imprint of his nature. The language here is important and carefully chosen. The word translated in the ESV as exact imprint is a word that's easily transliterated in our English language. It's just the word character. The word refers to an engraved character, an imprint made by a seal or on a coin. The word transla uh, translated nature here is, it means simply that. It means nature or being or essence or substance. The author's point is that the Son bears the same nature as God the Father. 
That's, that is the clear point that he is making. There is a full equality of deity here, but the author is careful to distinguish the Father and the Son. He is the exact imprint of his nature so that whatever makes the Father God, so is the Son, but at the same time, they are distinct. There is the Father and there is the Son. And this is exactly what John does in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Equality in deity, distinction in personhood. This is who the Son is. And this is what the church has taught for two millennia, basing its conclusions on texts just like this, wrestling over texts just like this, laboring over texts just like this, and like the ones we've already talked about in Colossians and John and so on, laboring to see what is true, not what initially makes sense to my own reason. What is true? And then asking the Spirit to continue to shape these categories in my mind so that I might think God's thoughts after him and behold Jesus as he really is. When we start relying upon our own reason and the categories that make the most sense to us, we won't behold Jesus for who he truly is. This, tr- this mystery of the Trinity is truly a mystery. It is. It's, it is hard to fully comprehend. Why? Because God is infinite. It is nevertheless true. The Father and the Son and equally the Spirit are fully equal in all that makes God, God. But they are distinct in their personhood. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. He is God of very God, as one of the old creeds puts it. As the incarnate Son, he represents God perfectly to us, for the Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son, as Jesus told Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the Son is God. You know what the conclusion or the application will be next week? Worship Him. Unhesitatingly, fully, with unabashed, unashamed worship. We'll talk about that in a minute, but it's also going to be a point we press home next week. What else can we say about the Son? Well, he says in verse, uh, the latter part of verse 3, that he oversees and sustains the universe. And again, kind of like saying he's the creator, this should suffice to convince you that he is in fact God. For to sustain and oversee the universe sounds a lot like something that God would do, right? Well, that's what the Son does. In fact, listen to this word. It's almost understated, which is the way a lot of Scripture is at times. It's understated. You see this even in Jesus' life and in the way the Gospel writers write about the Son of God's life here on earth. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Moving right along. He does what? He, he, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus just has to say, as God, he just has to say to the universe, stay in being, stay in place. And it does it. And that's what's presently happening. We are all existing in the way we're existing right now because Jesus says so. That's what the text says. He's overseeing in, in upholding the, the very universe that we are in. And to uphold the universe makes you God. That's, there's no other being in the universe that could do this unless you are God, of very God, of course. Now, I, I do want us to, to consider something just briefly that will take a little thinking. So stick with me here, okay? I think this is really important. If Jesus is anything less than God, as, as the cults claim, if Jesus is anything less than God, then we must conclude that the Bible is extremely confusing. 
And the way that God has chosen to reveal himself is nothing less than incoherent. So if a cult member appeals to the Bible, and yet they believe that Jesus is nothing or is less than God, then they've really backed themselves into the corner because they've got to admit that the Bible is incoherent at this point. Let me explain to you what I mean. Because God is clear throughout Scripture that he is to have no rivals for our worship and trust and affection, is that not the testimony of the Old Testament? Can I get an amen? You will have no rivals. I am your God, says the Holy One of Israel. Exodus 20, verse 1. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And we could add to that countless other texts, couldn't we? That in the Old Testament rebuke anyone who might set up a rival to the one true and living God. Just a few more. Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake... My own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Here's another one out of the countless <laughs> texts. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. That's how God feels about his worship. He will have no rival. He will destroy those rivals, as it turns out. Yet here we have the author of Hebrews describing the Son in ways that directly rival God the Father if the Son is not fully equal to the Father. You get what I'm saying here? The Son is the creator. He is the sustainer of the universe. He is even the one to whom the angels are commanded to worship, as we'll see next week. This kind of language makes the Son a direct rival to the Father, but only if the Son is not equal to the Father in every way. Let me say that again. This kind of language that we see in Hebrews chapter 1 makes the Son a direct rival to the Father, but only if the Son is not equal to the Father in His essence, which is precisely the point that the author of Hebrews is making. The person who denies the deity of the Son and who denies the Trinity backs themselves into an inescapable corner, in my judgment. Jesus if Jesus is not equal to the Father, then God has given us a revelation that does not help us determine what is and what isn't idolatry. God has set up his own rival, and the Bible at this point is utterly incoherent. But the clear point in this chapter is that the Son is fully God. He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Everything that makes the Father God the Son possesses. He is worthy of full-hearted, unabashed, unhesitant worship. Indeed, your worship of and glory of the Son gives the Father great joy. This is fascinating, right? Philippians 2, verses 10 through 11. This is what Paul writes at the end of his section on describing the humility of the Son. The Son reigned in all glory. He was God, a very God, yet he chose to humble himself and become a man and even suffer death upon the cross out of obedience to his father. And so what the father does in response to that glorious obedience, that beautiful humility, this is what he, uh, how the father responds to that. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, the son, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the father. This wholehearted, Loud, raucous worship to the Son brings glory to the Father. Now, someone might say, wait, doesn't that make the Father kind of jealous? 
Like, the son's getting all this glory, doesn't that make the father jealous? And my response is the profound, what? Yeah. <laughs> make, the, make the father jealous? I mean, just think about a daddy whose son, is, whose son is gaining recognition that he deserves for his academic excellence or his sports accomplishments or his outstanding theater performance. How does a dad feel when at graduation the son receives high honors or at the football championship his son is rewarded with the MVP or at the end of the play or the performance the crowd gives a round of applause for the way his son played the lead role? How does a daddy feel about that? He just wells up with joy upon joy. It's only a sick and self-centered man who would be envious of his son getting the glory. Right? How much more then is the father overjoyed to see his son getting the glory that he so richly deserves? The son's glory brings great joy and glory to the father. The father loves to see his son get the glory. And in a small way, we can see that a little bit, the way that earthly fathers are overjoyed to see their sons get the glory that they deserve. And so the, 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 the father loves to see this and, and is not jealous in the slightest. It brings him great joy. This is precisely why he did it. He exalted the son as now the God-man to the highest place. But we're not done yet because the son has also provided full atonement for sin. Provide a full atonement for the sin. Only God can do this, right? In chapter 2, we'll see that the Son has possesses perfect humanity so that he can die in our place. But who can fully satisfy God's justice? Well, only God can satisfy God's justice. So this Son, who is God a very God, is now said to have made purification for sin. The person of Christ is tied inextricably together with the work of Christ. You can't have one without the other. In order for Jesus' work to satisfy divine justice, Jesus himself must be God. In order to stand in your place, in my place, Jesus must be truly man. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus said, it is finished. When he was dying upon the cross, just before he uh, entrusted his spirit to his father, indicating that his sacrifice made complete and final atonement for his people. Under the Old Testament system, sacrifices had to be continually given because people were continually sinning and because the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin, ultimately. So the Levitical priests could only, uh, they would keep doing this and doing this and doing this until they were forced into retirement at age 50. But Jesus doesn't keep sacrificing himself over and over, coming down every 10 years in a new incarnation. He did it once 2,000 years ago. It is complete. It is sufficient. All sins have been paid for for his people. No more blood needs to be spilled. The blood spilled on the cross 2,000 years ago pays for every single sin that his people have committed and will commit in this life. That's when you first repent and believe. You can have complete assurance that you stand right with God. You don't need to wait. When will I get it? When will I get it? No, the moment you believe, because it's been completed 2,000 years ago in Jesus' death on the cross. And he's able to sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high because he has been raised from the dead. And now he's ascended, and he sits right next to his father in the place of authority. And that's the next point. He has complete divine authority. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
What we need to note here is that he is now sharing equally with the Father in all the rights and privileges of godhood and of rulership over the creation. But the author's emphasis here is on the Son as the incarnate God-man. Because he's certainly not making the argument that at any point Jesus, the Son, set aside his divine attributes or set aside his divine essence or became less than the Father or didn't have rights to the whole universe which he created. That's not his argument. What he's saying is, is that he is now set next to the Father and receiving all power and authority and all creation as the incarnate God-man who's accomplished redemption. The Son became a man, fulfilled all righteousness during his life on earth, died for his people on the cross, rose again from the dead. He now sits at the right hand of God as the God-man who's accomplished redemption which is now gives us insight into why he would say, verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Remember what we said. Some were apparently either within the group here or being susceptible to this idea that the sun could be somehow compared to and are on the same plane or even a little lower than the angels. Angels are spirits. Jesus is a man and so on. Is he really worthy of worship? That's the problem the author is addressing. So he points out that no angel is co-creator with God, the Father. We saw that. No angels are the very glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. No angel upholds the universe by the word of his power and sits at the right hand of all authority. The Son is superior to all angels. And if he's superior to all angels, then he deserves what angels do not get and what angels do not receive. Now, the phrase, having become superior, again, does not mean that... The son was somehow inferior, and he became superior. We have to read that phrase in light of what we just read and what the author has just taught. The author is not suggesting that the son was made by God more superior to angels as though he was inferior to the angels at some point and now greater than the angels. No, at every point from eternity through his incarnation, the son was fully God, truly God. He never set aside his divine attributes, as some have suggested. He never set aside his divine essence. The author is referring to the Son as his status as the God-man who has fulfilled everything necessary for the redemption of mankind. Now that he's fulfilled all righteousness and obeyed God perfectly in his manhood, he has provided full atonement, he has inherited a name that is superior to the angels as the incarnate God-man who has accomplished redemption. Prior to his incarnation, he had not accomplished redemption. Now he has. Now, what's this name that he has inherited? There are two basic interpretational choices we can make as I I read it. The one could be some say that he is the name that he inherited his son. And they point to the the immediate context, verse 5. For which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and again or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So they point to those texts. Those who argue that Jesus inherited the name Yahweh, that's the second interpretational choice that we have, point out that the term name elsewhere in Hebrews uh, refers most certainly to Yahweh. You can see that in chapter 2, verse 12, chapter chapter 6, verse 10, and chapter 13, verse 5. They would also say that the the term son is not a name, but a title or a description of Jesus. And that's pretty consistent throughout the book of Hebrews as well. Also, importantly, throughout the Old Testament, 
when God refers to his name, he's, he's referring to that which signifies his character. And this is actually a, a central theme throughout the Old Testament, God referring to his name. So it seemed that inheriting a name would be in line with this Old Testament precedent. So I take the name, therefore, to be Yahweh, that he's inheriting the name Yahweh. And this conclusion is also strengthened by what we just read in Philippians. Remember what we saw in Paul's statement there, the name at the name, oh, I would say the name that every tongue will confess someday is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, that word Lord in the New Testament, it's what is translating the Old Testament word Yahweh. In your Old Testaments, in most Bibles, except for the New Legacy Standard Bible, it translates the word Yahweh as capital L-O-R-D. Okay? In the New Testament, you, when you read Lord, often when it's tra- uh, uh, quoting the Old Testament, these Old Testament texts, that Yahweh is translated as uh, Kyrios, or L, uh, L-O-R-D, Lord, now in our English Bibles. So when Paul says that every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, what they're going to confess that Jesus Christ is the incarnate God, that he is God of very God. That's what they're going to confess. That's the name that Jesus has received, as we saw in uh, Philippians chapter 2. The name that is above every name is God. It's Yahweh. It's Lord. What the author of Hebrews and Paul are not saying is that the son lost the name of Yahweh and regained it. Remember, he's talking about what he has inherited now that he has accomplished the work of redemption as the God-man. He has now inherited the name Yahweh as the incarnate God-man, having accomplished redemption. And of course, that name Yahweh is far more excellent than the name any angel has received. No angel gets the name Yahweh. No angel gets to be the object of worship. No angel gets to be of the same essence of the Father as the incarnate God-man. So he's definitely not suggesting that the Son at some point lost his deity or needed to be given his deity again, but now as the incarnate God-man, he is installed as the ruler and firstborn preeminent one over all creation, and he will someday be seen as all as Yahweh of the old Testament, and he presently holds that title, a title that he has always held, but now he holds it as the incarnate God-man. So from the very outset of the letter, the author of Hebrews is channeling all, channeling all of his theological effort at raising up our vision and sight of this glorious Jesus Christ. If we are going to persevere in the faith, we need a glorious object. We need a Christ like this. I've talked to Jehovah's Witnesses countless of times, and one of, the thing I, one of the things I will ask them is, how did your Jesus even satisfy you? This angel. I don't want an angel. I want God, a very God. I want the incarnate God-man. He's the one who can save. He's the one who can satisfy divine justice. He's the one who can take my place. He's the one who upholds the, the, the world by, the, by his powerful world. He's the one who can make everything happen according to his own purposes. He's the one who can cause all things to work together for my good, even when I mess up. I don't want some angel. Get out of here with that nonsense. This is how the author of Hebrews will say in chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Beginning with this theologically rigorous portrait of Jesus is not an accident. 
We must see Jesus Christ for who he really is or our faith will fizzle out. This is why week in and week out, we just got to keep preaching Christ so that our vision is clear and we keep seeing Jesus so that our faith won't fizzle out because it will if we don't see Jesus for who he is. The goal of this passage is to get you to see Jesus for all he is and all his glory so that you will persevere in the faith. That's my goal in preaching through the book of Hebrews. You know why? Because that's the author's goal in the book of Hebrews. A weak view of Jesus will lead to weak faith, but a glorious view of Christ, who is both great and powerful and merciful and kind and glorious and creator and God of the universe will give you a strong and shakable faith. You know what? There are times in preaching where we have to deal with the nitty-gritty stuff, and we got to get down to brass tacks, and we got to talk about nitty-gritty practical issues of life. And we do that, and we have to apply biblical principles in, in that way. But there are times when you just need to come and hear Jesus proclaimed from the rooftops. That's what you need. You need to just come and hear Jesus. That's the application. Listen and hear and behold Jesus Christ. We need a majestic vision of God that feeds our faith at its deepest roots. We can't just manage the branches and the limbs and the fruit of our faith. Those are important, of course, but we must get down to the roots of our faith and feed them well because the roots feed everything else, don't they? Our deepest need is a glorious vision of Jesus Christ. Do you know what a deep drip system is? You can make them yourself. I've made them, probably not very well, but I made them. They're a long tube, maybe about 18 inches to two feet long, depending on the kind of tree that you have or the kind of plant that you have. And they're long tubes that you drill holes in them and you dig way down the length of the tube so that just the top part of it's sticking out of the soil and you dig it way down deep into put it right next to maybe six to inches to a foot away from the the brand new tree that you just planted and the reason why you do this is because they've shown that this and then and then as you water it you pour the water into the deep drip system and it distributes the water way 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 deep and so it pushes the 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 roots of the tree way way deeper than they otherwise go and the reason you do that is so that they can, they can grow deeper and stronger than they otherwise would because if you just pour on top, the water goes, it goes a little bit ways, but it doesn't go as deep, and so the, the roots tend to be more shallow. And what I would say is that the author of Hebrews is, is digging for us a deep drip system, particularly here. He is, he is going down deep into our hearts, and he's feeding our faith at its deepest root with this glorious picture of who Jesus is. And we're going to get to wade in these waters. We're going to get to drink from these waters for the next couple of weeks, and really also just throughout the entire book of Hebrews. It's really all about the supremacy of Christ. So your job Sunday after Sunday as we go through Hebrews is just come and hear about Jesus. Come and listen to the preaching about Jesus and who he is. But pay close attention, as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 2. Pay closer attention. Come and sit and enjoy the glory of Christ as he is proclaimed from these texts. But make sure that you are, in fact, enjoying the glory of Christ as he is preached from these texts. Listen intently. Listen carefully. Write down truths that you can meditate on and talk about later today and later this week. Don't just let them kind of float out of your mind and be like, oh, that was good, and then just walk out and then you just forget it. Write them down. Get together with a friend. Talk about these things throughout the week. 
follow through with repentance that the Spirit stirs up in your hearts and pray that God would keep Jesus as the north star of your heart so that you would not drift away toward the fleeting pleasures of sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this text would settle deep into our hearts the truths of, of who Jesus is. Would you just open our eyes to behold the Lord Jesus? That we would be able to say with John in a good conscience, he must increase and I must decrease to the lowest place. Let us be satisfied to be low, to be unknown, so that Jesus Christ would be exalted in our lives, but also in our hearts, that we would have the pleasure of enjoying Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's exaltation in our own hearts because we are not seeking after our own glory. Would you make him the north star of our hearts that we would not drift into sin and that we might remain steady on course? And we ask you for you to do this work in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.